All right, we are continuing with our study of Romans. We are going to do today Romans 8, verse 22 to 25. We'll start with that. Uh, and that passage, uh, again, very powerfully written by Paul, where he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Again, another example of his brilliance uh, and spiritual discernment. Uh, the, the idea that creation is groaning, and I tell you where this, where this comes from. It comes from the fact that at the Garden of Eden, when sin entered the world, the entire creation fell into decay. Now, God never intended death to be a part of the creation. He didn't intend for us to die, and he didn't intend for creation to be decayed. Uh, he intended this all to be uh, existing uh, continuously. But when humanity abandoned God uh, and came to Satan and rebelled against God, that sin permeated not just humanity, because we experienced death, but also creation. That creation would fall. That creation would decay, and we understand that. Uh, and that's what's going on. And so he talks about this in a way that he personifies uh, the, the inanimate creation. Obviously, it's not uh, a personification, uh, but he's writing it in a way metaphorically so that you understand what's going on, meaning that everything is coming apart uh, and that ultimately would all be destroyed. Uh, and that's why we have hope, 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 because we're saved. We're saved. And I want you to know this, that if somebody asks you, are you going to heaven? Answer immediately, yes, yes. And how do you know? I know because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's the answer. You understand? That's the answer. It's not about your personality. It's not about uh, uh, the amount of money that you give away. It's one thing, one thing that you had nothing to do about. It's because you accepted Christ, and God now sees you in the filtering lens of Jesus Christ. Amen? This is important for you to understand this. This is why you can walk in triumph as a Christian. This is why you can have uh, a great day, even when you get good, bad news. It's because you know where you're going. You see, you know where you're headed. You're headed to heaven. Uh, and that's the promise that God has given us, that Jesus Christ has given us. Uh, and so I've dedicated my life to making certain that I, that I give this message to people because I find that this is a message that people need to hear. Now let me say something else to you uh, that's appropriate as I do this. When you spread the gospel, when you talk to people about Jesus Christ, let's not get in the weeds about denominational differences. Can I say that right now? Let's not get into the weeds about denominational differences because we know that all denominations have some different 
viewpoint of theology. And I came about this because I, I heard about a discussion that took place over the weekend uh, between two people of different denominations, which wasn't, didn't end well. Well, how can it end well? I mean, really, how can it end well uh, when, when you put down and denigrate somebody else's uh, theology? Here's the thing. You're going to heaven for one reason only. You believe in Jesus. You understand? Now, irrespective about the fact that we may have some denominational differences, all right, that's not what's going to take you to heaven. You think Jesus is going to give you a theology 101 course before he lets you in? No. No. Let me assure you. Uh, only Christ alone. And so do you want to spread the gospel in a powerful way? Focus on Jesus. You understand? Focus on Jesus. Don't begin to focus on the fact, well, you're Reformed, I'm not Reformed. You're Catholic, I'm Protestant. You do this, I do that. Forget that stuff. Focus on the cross of Christ. And when you focus on the cross of, of Christ, all this other nonsense goes away. Remember this. Denominational differences are creations of man. You understand? This is what I preach, the Bible. Okay? This is what I preach. I focus on Jesus Christ. I don't focus on denominational differences. Uh, if somebody asks me a question about where various denominations are and what the differences are, I'll answer honestly, but I will not make that a part of my preaching because I don't want to put a, a stumbling block between you and Jesus Christ. That's why I also don't talk about politics. You'll notice this. You'll never see me get involved in an examination of politics or political leader, uh, leaders. Why? Because I don't want to put a stumbling block between you and Jesus Christ. So let's say I'm a conservative Republican, uh, and, I make a, and I make a statement about that. All right. Well, now all of a sudden, all of my Democratic friends who need to hear about Jesus are turned off. They're turned off. I don't want to listen to this guy. He's a conservative Republican. That's why, really, I try as much as possible uh, to keep my political feelings hidden because I don't want to be a stumbling block. All right. And I would say for you, too, this is a good way to lead your life. You want, God wants you to bring other people to the kingdom of God. All right? He wants you to bring other people to the kingdom of God. And so when you bring people to the kingdom of God, know your Bible, focus. Focus on what Jesus has said. Lead your discussion about Jesus. It's Jesus and nothing else. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 So I'm so happy to, hear, to say that and that God touched my heart this morning to mention that. Now this is one of the rare, rare times uh, that this Greek word for groan appears in the Bible. How about that? One of the rare times. The interesting thing is that in this uh, passage, he applies it to three different entities in the verse. He applies it to the creation. He applies it to ourselves. And he applies it to the Holy Spirit. How about that? Three different entities, all groaning uh, as God has revealed to him. Now, of creation, Paul says that it's been groaning right up to the present time. Uh, and he includes in groaning, groaning for ourselves and groaning by the Holy Spirit. Now, the groaning in verse 23 is that of believers in Jesus Christ and not all people generally. And let me focus on this for you. 
When you read Romans 8, this message is for people who are Christians, okay? We're talking about Christians. Uh, the essence of what we read here does not apply generally to non-Christians. Uh, and I'll give you a specific example of that because we will get to, uh, next week or the week after, Romans 8.28, which says, For we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Now, I often see non-Christians say, well, I believe all things work out for good. Really? Where are you getting that? Where are you getting that all things work out for good? Let me assure you, all things do not work out for good if you're a non-Christian. In fact, I can assure you of this, all things work out for bad if you're a non-Christian. All right, you can take that to the bank. They work out for bad. But if you are a Christian, you can take that verse to the bank. All things work together for good. All things, good things, bad things, things that you have no idea about because he holds you in the palm of his hand. He has determined what your life purpose is about and he has called you to be with him. That is why you know that. That is why you get up in the morning and you can be triumphant because you know that no matter what happens, all things will work out for good. How? I don't know. All right? I'm going to be the first to tell you that. I don't know how all things work out for good. I don't know how you get a debilitating disease or your children uh, suffer uh, persecution and suffering, and yet it all works out for good. But I know this. The Bible has proven it to me. The Bible has proven it to me. How do I know that? Well, I'll take the example of, of Joseph, whose brother sold him into slavery. All right, 17 years cut away from his family, sent into prison for a crime he didn't commit. In prison, in isolation, suffering, persecuted, uh, and yet stayed righteous with God. And while he's in prison where none of us would write a good story, what possibly good can take place in prison when you're cut away uh, by your family who sold you into slavery, yet while he's in prison, he reveals the dreams of two men who worked for Pharaoh. And one of those men eventually told Pharaoh, there's a guy in prison who can answer your dream. And by that, G uh, Joseph is elevated, imagine that, elevated from the prison and becomes the second in command in all of Egypt. Does that sound like all things work together for good? All right. Could you even think of a story like that, that you go from the prison to being prime minister? But you see, that's how, how God works. And further, God even makes the, 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 the determination of good going even further than Joseph. Because now his family, the nascent Jewish uh, country, which at that point numbered about uh, 40 or 50 people, uh, from his father and his brothers. Now they're starving in Canaan. They now come uh, to Egypt, and God protects them. He protects them for 400 years, all right, in this one section of Egypt, and they grow to 3.5 million people in 400 years, and then God will take them out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. You see, all of that comes from the good of this one man. And I would assure you that that's the example for your own life. 
So whatever you're going through, whatever difficulties you're going through, if you've signed on with the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rest assured all things work together for good. Uh, And so as he writes this passage about groaning, what he's indicating is that we as Christians are grieving over the presence of sin. We're grieving over the presence of sin in our own lives. We grieve over the fact that we still fall to sin, which we always will. Uh, and, and we see what's happened in the world. And as we do that, as Christians, we groan. Sometimes groaning means that we don't even put it into words. Have you ever just sighed? Have you ever just gone, oh, oh I know I have, where I can't even articulate. I can't even articulate what it is that's heavy on, on my spirit. But it is. Uh, and so... Uh, God is, is, is using Paul to speak about this. Now, secondly, the groaning of Christians is not mere sadness uh, over this life. It's not just you're sad over what's going on in this life. It is an expectant grief, a grief that looks forward to a time when all that is causing the pain and salvation will be revealed to this world. You see, that's what the groaning is about. You sit here, you've accepted Christ, and yet you look around you, you see death and depredation. All right? You see a world that, that's given over to sin, and you're groaning because you, all, you want God to redeem this world. You want God to show his salvation to a world that is lost, uh, and that causes grief. And that's the groaning aspect. Now, Christian groaning is a joyful grief, as he writes it, that's compared to childbirth. And what do I mean? I mean this. When a a woman is going through childbirth, she's in intense pain. Intense pain. But at the end of the pain, there's a joyful prize. There's a baby that will impact her life and her husband's life forever. Uh, And so it's a grief that looks to hope and endurance. That's what this is about. He's speaking about this. This, is, this groaning looks for a day of redemption and salvation. We groan in the expectation of future better days. We groan because we know that God will eventually save this world. Jesus Christ will come back. Uh, and if you have any doubt about that, pick up the book of Revelation and read the last chapter, and I've got a, a surprise for you. We win. We win. You understand? We win. Uh, And when he comes back, he's not coming back as the baby in the manger. He's coming back as the lion of Judah. You understand? And he's not going to take any prisoners when he comes back. And when he comes back, we in this room will all be behind him as the saints of the universe marching with him. uh, And as he comes back to take this world over. And here's the thing. He won't have to lift a sword. All he will do, the Bible says, will be utter a word. He will utter a word through the Holy Spirit. And it will be as if a sword comes through his mouth. And all of the enemies of God will be destroyed. That's exactly what's going to happen, so that you understand it. I mean, this is why you have joyful expectation. This is the end of the day. This is what we're involved with. And so this is all a continuation of the arguments that he has been raising and delineating since the beginning of Romans chapter 8. That's what this book is all about. The theme of this chapter is the fact 
<clears throat> that the Christian has the assurance of salvation. Uh, and that, that assurance will be kept by God and his power. That's the thing about this. He is writing this for Christians. He's writing this to let you know you have the assurance that God says, I have you, that nothing will take you out of my hand, that you will be with me forever. Yes, you will fall. Yes, you will sin. But nonetheless, as long as you continue to worship me and adopt me as your Lord and Savior, you will be there with me to the end. Now, the, the first part of this chapter distinguishes between those who are saved and those who are not. And we talked about that. There's only two classes of people according to Paul, right? Saved and unsaved. He says that's how God looks at the world, saved and unsaved. And he's given you the life preserver, and if you reject the life preserver, you are in the latter group, you are the unsaved. Uh, and he has spoken to us how we can test our salvation. He's given that to us. Uh, he, met, he makes the ultimate point that those who are Christ's will live for Christ. You see, here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you're not a secret Christian. How about that? All right? Uh, I laugh when I hear people say, well, I don't like to wear my, my faith on my sleeve. No, no. You don't wear it on your sleeve. You wear it on your hat. You wear it on your back. You wear it on every part of your body. If you are a Christian, you can't keep it a secret. You understand? You can't keep it a secret. And that's part of what being a Christian is. Uh, and so he has made four points to remember this. First of all, we live as Christians every day of our life. You know, I don't want you to be like that story of, of two guys at a water cooler uh, that worked together for years, and the one guy says to the other, what'd you do this weekend? And he says, well, I went to church. And the other guy goes, you're kidding. You're a Christian? I've known you for 17 years. I never would have guessed you're a Christian. Wow, I hope nobody says that about us. You understand? I hope nobody says that about us uh, because that's part of being a Christian, walking with Jesus, living with Jesus. We have to live as a Christian. That's what he's saying. Then we have the internal sense of being in God's family. You have this through the Holy Spirit, meaning what? God is telling you you're part of the family of God. You are the brother of Jesus Christ. All these people in this room are fellow brothers within the faith. Uh, and it's not within the faith of a denomination, as I said in the beginning. It's within the faith of the family of God. That's what it's about. You understand? Don't go thinking about denominationalism. And I told you, please, when you get to heaven, remember one thing that I've told you. But do me, do me a favor. Please write this down on your hand so you don't forget it. Don't go saying, where are the Baptists? Where are the Catholics? I need to know I want to be with my own kind. Don't go there. That's a big mistake because a trap door will open up and I have no idea. I have no idea where you're headed, all right? Do yourself a favor, all right? In fact, what you want to say, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? That's what it's all about. And, and then the other thing that we know uh, as we focus on the basic points to remember, is that the Holy Spirit is a direct witness with our spirit. Now, he's spoken about this. He has given you the Spirit of God. Uh, and by giving you the Spirit of God, he has given you the means by which you can live a godly life. I know guys say to me, oh, I'm a weak guy. I'm weak. 
I can't help myself. I have certain lusts. Well, let me tell you something. He is, if you're a Christian, God's given you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is a means to turning off your lusts, all right, to constrain yourself because it's the Spirit of God. And so you want to have, have the Spirit of God get stronger and stronger in your life. One of the things I'm going to preach on starting this Sunday, and I'm going to do it in a sermon series, is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Meaning God has given you the Holy Spirit, and he's given you the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, joy, patience, uh, self-control. What? Am I supposed to have these things? Yes. You are supposed to have these things. And I know some of you are saying, whoa, well, I fell off the train on some of those things. And I understand it. Listen, I'm the first one to say that, I, that I'm, I've got issues on some of these things. Self-control was always an issue for me because I, had, I was one of those guys that, that would respond in anger. I can tell you that when I was in court and I, and I would hear uh, people lie under oath. And by the way, that happens all, all the time. You understand? That happens all the time. You, when, you, when you practice law, you recognize that one thing people do is they lie under oath. It would so aggravate me that I, I, I said to one guy, I threatened one guy at a break that if he said something like that again, I was going to pull out his windpipe and shove it up a different part of his body. <laughs> I said that. I'm not proud that I said it because after I said it, uh, I said, oh, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. Uh, and and uh, the judge then asked this particular witness why he didn't want to speak any longer. If... <laughs> he said, because we, we have a lot of questions for you. And the guy said, no, I don't, I don't have anything more to say. Uh, and afterwards, I went up to the guy to shake his hands and ask him to, to forgive me. All right, I, I'm, I'm sorry what I said. And he put his hands straight down, like a straight jacket. Uh, and the judge saw him, and the judge said, Mr. Smith, that is an outrage. Mr. Garippa has gone over to you to shake your hands, and you have refused to shake his hands. And his lawyer said, yeah, but you didn't hear what Garippa said to him before. <laughs> and I went to the judge. I have no idea what he's talking about. I have no idea. But you see, that's right, I wasn't under oath. But, he, he, but you understand, that's what I talk about, self-control. You understand self-control. Uh, and and the, the Holy Spirit tempers it down. And I have to say that uh, as I've gotten into ministry and I've recognized the fact that God wants me to temper my behavior, that everywhere I go, every place I am, I, I'm a messenger for Jesus Christ. And there's no difference for you. Somebody said this morning, oh, I, I heard you play golf. Uh, and, and he and Carlo and I were talking about it, and he says, oh, I want, do you guys like curse when you're playing golf? And, and I, I said, no, 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 we don't curse. And Carlo said, we don't curse because we don't keep score. <laughs> but we don't curse because we're Christians, you understand? Because we're, we, we are under a higher power. What good is it for you to call yourself a Christian, then you go out in the world, you get on the first tee, you shank a ball into the clubhouse, and all of a sudden words are coming out of your mouth, the likes of which the world hasn't seen in some time. Do you think you're advancing the kingdom of God? 
Honestly, do you think you're advancing the kingdom of God? And I want you to focus on that. This is about advancing the kingdom of God. I'm teaching you so you take this and take it out and give it to other people. I want you to change your lives and become incredibly big messengers for Jesus Christ. Uh, and then the last aspect that we know that we're, we are Christian is that we, will, we are suffering as heirs of Christ. Let me break it to you. You're not going to walk on a bed of roses into heaven. Oh, I know you're not hearing that on TV. All right. I know you hear on TV, you'll hear guys saying, you know, send me $10, I'll send you a prayer cloth. Or now they're even selling holy water. I saw somebody said that to me. He was going to buy a gallon of it. You know, he thought he could wash his car with it and get some good karma. And, and, and the point of it is we reject that. Do you understand? We reject that. We serve Christ. Will we suffer as Christ? Yes. Will we have pain? Yes. Will we have dark days? Yes. But all of that puts us in the family of Jesus Christ. Uh, and never, let it, never forget it. We always look at how the first 11 guys made out. We'll put 12, we'll put Paul in there. How'd they make out? They were all martyred. Every single one of them were put to death. All right? Every single one of them were put to death. The only one that wasn't put to death was the Apostle John, who according to Polycarp, it's not in Scripture, but according to Polycarp, his disciple was put into a boiling vat of hot oil. How do you like that? A boiling vat of hot oil. And after 30 minutes of him doing the doggy paddle, yeah, in a vat of hot oil, uh, they yanked him out because they couldn't believe that he didn't die. And the curtains around the vat of oil burned up. Uh, and then Caesar wanted to put him to death again, have him beheaded. But one of the senators said, and this is all uh, in secondary writings uh, that I believe are, are reliable, said, no, you can't, you can't have capital punishment after it's been administered for the first time under Roman rules. That's why he was sent into isolation. You got it? How about that? You see that? And so he died as an old man. All right, but he was never truly martyred, even though they tried to do that. Uh, and so all of these verses that you see in Scripture, all of these verses in, in Romans 8, uh, give substance to the Christian hope. I'm telling you what it's going to be like to live as a Christian. I'm not painting a fake package. I'm giving you the reality of what the Bible hope tells us. They flesh out the main uh, consummation of for which we are waiting. All right? The redemption of our bodies. That's what's going to happen. And what do I mean when I say the redemption of our bodies? I mean this. Your soul is redeemed now. You are redeemed. You're going to heaven. But some days, this physical body you're carting around will also be redeemed. When the Lord comes back, the graves will open up, according to the Bible. Your bodies will be materialized uh, in a glorious way, the way Jesus is, uh, and your bodies itself will be redeemed. Now, let me just momentarily digress on the issue of cremation. I don't want you to think that that verse means it's a sin to be cremated. The Bible doesn't speak to that, all right? The Bible doesn't speak to that. Uh, and I would say this, whether, you're, whether you perish in the ocean 
and they never find your body, or whether you go to a, a crematorium and have your body cremated, what remains are the basic essence of matter. And do you believe that the God who created the universe out of nothing and created it out of putting all of this matter together is incapable of taking the disparate molecules of your body and putting it together? Please, please. Is your God a little G? My God's a big G, all right? And so we understand that. And so that's the point of understanding this, that our bodies itself will be redeemed. Uh, and so part of this uh, writings of Paul is to give us understanding of suffering. Suffering. What, what's suffering about? Why do we have to experience suffering? What does it mean when you're a Christian and you experience suffering? Well, one of the things that you know is that your suffering is in your physical body. And that physical body will one day be redeemed. Uh, and so uh, in order for your uh, redemption to be complete, uh, this salvation has to permeate your body as well. You come, to, you come to salvation by accepting Christ Jesus. You accept him in your mind. You know who he is. You accept him in your heart. And it takes over your body in every possible way. So when we speak about being saved, and here I want you to focus on this, because this is important. You're going to talk about salvation. You're going to talk about to people who don't know what salvation is. Well, I'm going to say this to you. When we talk about being saved, as you read the writings of Paul, uh, you can speak of it in three different ways. And I like this, because I think... Uh, it, it shows the depth of Christianity. First, you could say that you were saved by the death of Jesus on the cross. Absolutely, you were saved from death by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Having nothing to do with anything that you did willfully, other than recognizing, Father, I'm lost. I need a Savior. Jesus, take over my life. I will follow you for the rest of my life. Instantaneously, you are saved and guaranteed that you will be with God and filled with the Holy Spirit. But second, you could also say that you are being saved daily, pointing to the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in your life. What do I mean by that? Every single day, he's pouring the fruit of the Spirit into your life. Every single day, you are changing. You're becoming more like Jesus Christ. And if you're not becoming more like Jesus Christ, you need to get on your knees and ask God to refill you with the Holy Spirit to do that because that's what he wants. You need to walk into a room and have everybody recognize you're different. You're different. You're not like everybody else. You're different because you're being saved. You recognize the failings in your body. You recognize the fact that you're a sinner. But you confess your sins daily. Lord, forgive me. Make me more like Jesus, Lord. Help me to be a, a better person, a better husband, a better father. And so this is part of, of what God expects from us. You are being saved. And you could say that uh, every day. Uh, and you can point to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what's doing it. It's the Holy Spirit that says to you, John, don't say that. John, don't do that. John, don't go there. John, be kinder. Be patient. Be more loving. Do you find yourself ha having those kinds of conversations? Because that's the nature of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will make you a better husband. You know what I mean. 
In the past, your wife might not even have said something, but she'll look at you with a nuanced look. You know what I mean by a nuanced look, all right? You, maybe you want to go somewhere or do something, and your wife just looks at you. And after being married for 40 or 50 years, you know what that look is. And the old you would lash out. What do you mean? What are you doing? I have a right to do this. I work hard. I work hard. Can I have some fun? And she looks at you. But now the Holy Spirit goes, pulls a leash on you. Stop it. Don't be cruel. Don't be rash. Don't be unkind. Keep that tongue in place. Keep that tongue in place. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, that we keep our tongue in place. I've told the story, and, and I, it bears repeating again right here about keeping our tongue in place because I've had a hard time keeping my tongue in place. Of course, I made a good living with that tongue. Uh, and, and so in some ways, I, I respect that. But there was a time, maybe 15 years ago, when I would become very resentful about what would happen in Naples during the winter time. That the kind of things that I'd like to do, I couldn't do. And one of my favorite things was to go to the Fifth Avenue coffee shop and have coffee. Well, I go down there, and now there's a line out to the sidewalk. And I'm getting angry. And not only am I getting angry, but the guy in front of me is dressed in one of those sausage suits. You know those sausage suits, those suits that the, that the bicycle people wear, right? You know that. Those skin-tight outfits. So now I'm aggravated over two things. I'm aggravated that I'm waiting out on the sidewalk, and I'm aggravated that this guy who's the same age as I am can fit in this suit, and I couldn't put my arm in it. <laughs> and so it's brewing on me. You know, it's brewing. It's brewing as I'm walking up and waiting to get coffee. And just before this guy gets to the register, another one of his compatriots dressed in a sausage suit comes over and gives him a list. Hey, Joe, put this order in with like 15 things on it. That did it. That did it. I can't, I can't constrain myself. This guy looks around and I'm ready to launch a missile from my mouth. I take a deep breath and I'm going to blast this guy into kingdom come. And this guy looks at me and says, John, we love your Bible study. Oh, dear God, oh, Lord, forgive me. Think of the devastation I could have done for the kingdom of God had I just launched that missile, all right? And that taught me something. It taught me something to restrain yourself, to be careful, because this is what, what, you, what you need to do. Be careful. Uh, and, and as we talk about what it, what it means about being saved, the third point about being saved is you could add that you will be saved thinking of the resurrection to come. That's the third part of, the, of salvation. There's a resurrection to become, to come, uh, when Christ will come back, when the graves open up, and you recognize that that's part of salvation. It's all tied together. I mean, it's amazing what God is is doing for us. So it is no wonder, you see, that we groan in these bodies. They are the seat of our physical weakness uh, and our sinful nature. Uh, and that's the nature of what it is. As long as we're walking in this world, carrying around this flesh, you will sin. Make no mistake about it, you will sin. But we know that these bodies are going to be transformed. Uh, and that our transformational bodies will be sinless and glorious and will look like Jesus Christ. Now, Paul also speaks here about believers moving toward a harvest 
which he calls the first fruits of the Spirit. Uh, now he's referring to the Holy Spirit as the first fruit, which is a harvest uh, drawn from the Jewish life. You know, that was one of the big, the big celebrations in Jewish life. First fruit, meaning what? When the Jews had a harvest, uh, and, and you know, I've read that, uh, you know, we talk today about tithing, but the pious Jews probably gave away 25 to 30% of their income uh, to the temple. And this was one of the things that they did. They would give a part of their first fruit of the harvest. The first part of the harvest went to the temple. Uh, and so you see, it belonged to the temple. It belonged to God. Uh, and this was an offering that consecrated the entire harvest. In other words, they were thanking God for the blessing of giving us a successful harvest. Uh, and the full blessing of this was a joyful time for those who labored and were then willing to endure great hardship that would come. And so he's comparing this uh, to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is in you and is in the first fruit, is giving blessings to God even though you will suffer hardship. Now, in, in order to understand the groaning that we do in the Spirit, we need to understand the concept of hope. Hope, hope. We see hope, the hope of glory, in uh, Colossians 1, verse 27. If you have your Bible, take a look at that. Colossians 1, 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right? He's giving the Gentiles this great key to the mystery, the hope of glory, the hope of what is to come. That's what God does. He does it through the Holy Spirit. Uh, look also, if you would, at Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Look, when we talk about the hope of Christianity, this is not just an empty phrase. You know, this is not like, you know, when you talk to somebody and they'll say, oh, I hope I have a good day. I hope I have some good luck. Uh, this isn't that kind of hope. This is a fully expectant help. Uh, why? Because first of all, he says, we glory in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings. And you know, I spoke about that in church yesterday. Uh, about Paul having that thorn in the flesh and how when he asked God to deliver him and God said, no, uh, that thorn is going to deliver you, meaning you're going to be transformed by that pain, that transformational pain. And so you see it here. Uh, we see that here. I glory in my sufferings. Now, only a Christian could say that. Only a Christian who's devoted, devoted to God why do, I, why do I glory in my suffering? What does suffering do for you? Well, this is an important thing for you to understand in this verse, Romans 5, verse 3 to 5. Well, suffering produces perseverance. How about that? I'm talking about Christian perseverance. Perseverance that says I continue to walk with the cross even when I don't understand what's happening to me. I don't understand why I'm having these issues in my life. 
why I'm, I'm, I'm losing out on these relationships. But I know that God is working with me, and this suffering is going to produce perseverance. He wants you to persevere. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for men who strongly carry the cross. Then what? Perseverance produces character. How do you think God is changing your character? Think about it. Think about where you were when you first came to Christ. What kind of character you had. And now compare that character to where you are. Do you think your character has changed? I can tell you, frankly, mine has, without a doubt. Without a doubt. There was a time when I would be very careful about talking about Christ. I didn't make a big deal about it. I didn't want people to know I was a born-again Christian because coming from New Jersey, uh, that was a phrase that when you said it, that immediately put you in a flake character, uh, category. You understand? You're a flake. You're one of those born-again losers. All right? So I was very careful about doing that. Well, now I, I'm very obvious about it. Yes, I'm born again. I want people to know that. I don't care if you think I'm a flake because my character has changed. My character is not about me. I'm not a narcissist any longer. It's about him. That's what your character is. If you think about it, before you became a Christian, you were a narcissist. Me, 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 I, I. It's all about me. Instead, you realize it's all about him. When you recognize that, your character has changed. And then through the character, you have hope. You have hope. Not an isolated, disparate, metaphysical hope, but a real hope, a transformational hope. And hope does not put us to shame. What a great... Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You see, we really need to have a greater understanding of what he's doing with the Holy Spirit. He's poured all the fruit of the Spirit into you through the Holy Spirit. And the first fruit of the Spirit is love. So you're becoming more filled with love. You're able to love your wife better. You're able to love your kids better. You're able to love your fellow Christians better. All right? Because you've been filled with the hope of love. Uh, which has been given to us. This is important to understand the transformational aspects of what God is doing to us as Christians. Now, what is striking, really, uh, about the Christian attitude of hopefulness is that it is a sure and definite hope. It's not wishful thinking. We're not involved in fanciful, wishful thinking. Everything that we believe in uh, and hope for has been promised to us by God. Here it is. Here's the promises in this book. And this is what we hope for because we know it's going to come. We expect it to come. Now, the Christian has one eye on the world, uh, which is compelling. We live in the world, and so we understand that. So we keep one eye on the world. But it is not primarily concerned even with deliverance from hell and punishment and all the things that trouble us. Why do I say that? Because you're not going to hell. That's been taken off your plate, all right? So you don't have to become obsessed with hell. You're going to heaven. That's the promise. You understand? That's what God has given you uh, in your heart through the Holy Spirit. That, that concern and obsession about hell was in the past, before you were saved. You understand? Before you were saved. He's taken it away on the cross. He's taken it away on the cross. And so... Uh, all of that belongs in the past, and we have to separate that, where we came from and where we are. Uh, true Christianity sets its affection on the things which are above. 
That's what he wants you to do. The things that are above, not the things that are here in this world or on this earth, but the things are what, what he has promised us, what's to come. Uh, and, and if you look uh, at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says it very well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to focus on heaven. He wants you to focus on the cross. He wants you to focus on where you're headed. You're headed to eternity with Jesus Christ. This is the message that you have to deliver. You don't worry about what's gone on. You don't worry about the sufferings or the grief that you do. You put it in God's hands. All things work together for good. Here's what I say, Lord, you're in charge. You're in charge. That's why every aspect of my life I pray, Lord, what's your will? What's your will? I'll do whatever you want. You tell me. You open the door. You close the doors. I'll follow you. That's what you do. And when you do that, your life is re released from the obsession of this world and the obsession of uh, materialism and affluence. Uh, and so what I want you to understand is that it is these heavenly-minded people walking with Christ who are really going to make any lasting difference in this world. I mean, if you want to make a lasting difference in the world, you have to be in that group. You have to be that kind of person who looks above, who looks at the cross, not obsessed uh, about the issues of this world, but instead recognizes that whatever you're going through in this world, God is perfecting you. He is, he is making you a better Christian. He is making you more like Jesus Christ every day. That's what this is about. That's what Romans 8 is about. That's what these verses are about. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for what you have delivered us today in this message. What great things you are doing for us as men, Lord. We are so grateful as you change us and modify our behavior, as we understand what we go through, even through suffering, Father. But you have reminded us to keep our, our mind fixed on things from above. Keep our mind fixed on the cross and walk every day with you, Lord, emphasizing Jesus Christ in every aspect of our life, in every relationship in our life, emphasizing Jesus Christ and continue to transform us daily so that we can become more like Jesus in every day. Lord, I ask you to bless our men, protect them this week. Bring them back next week that we can continue the study of your word as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. God bless you.